Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, my guest is Thomas Ridd. He is the author of Active Measures, as well as a professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins University, and perhaps one of our leading uh, specialists on disinformation, not just the Russian variety, but all kinds. Thomas, it's great to have you on. And we had uh, we had arranged this interview before this rather bombshell ODNI intelligence assessment came out. But before we get to that, because I know you have a lot to say on it, I just want to thank you for coming on and say what a, a pleasure it was to read your book. I'm very much interested in disinformation and propaganda and a lot of the, uh, the case studies you had. I had only sort of known a surface level of detail and knowledge that you kind of plumb the depths of in particularly the, uh, the, the trust episode, which is kind of lore among intelligence and counterintelligence um, gurus. Uh, it's such a fascinating history and really extraordinarily well-researched, and I recommend all my listeners to go out and buy it. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on in particular is you have a very subtle and nuanced understanding of how these influence operations and, and indeed active measures work. And I suppose one of my frustrations in the past five, six years now, opening the newspaper or turning on cable news is to see a very kind of crude rendering of things that are actually a little more complicated and sophisticated, which is not to say more successful in their execution. It's refreshing to have somebody who has a broad historical perspective to bring to bear on this. And, you know, I, I want to open it up broadly to you and say at the outset, what is to your mind, what has particularly the American news media establishment got wrong about, if, we, if you want to begin in 2016, right, because this was what we were all obsessed by, the, the Trump-Russia scandal, which then led into the Mueller report and then culminated, I suppose, with the Senate Subcommittee on Intelligence Reports. What did we get wrong in trying to understand troll farms from St. Petersburg or ruble bought Facebook ads or, you know, fake avatars created with artificial intelligence to hoodwink Western freelancers into writing for Russian propped up fake news outlets? I mean, and, and also to give credit to my so-called profession, what did we get right as a scholar? I mean, give us our a report card, if you like. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on. I'm honored really to have this conversation with you. I think extremely highly of your investigative work and especially the details and documents that you brought to light over the past months and years. On your question, what did the press coverage in the United States, but also beyond the United States, get wrong and what did it get right? Obviously, that is a vast question, and I can only spotlight one or two issues. But let me mention the troll farms, the social media influence component, which you also listed first in your question. And I think that really was part of the mistake that we collectively made. And I don't blame primarily the American journalists and reporters for this, but actually I would blame to a significant extent the Mueller special counsel investigation because they, for some reason, decided to publish their IRA, Internet Research Agency, indictment first, which really framed and focused the conversation on social media interference, as opposed to the more insidious, more professional, and I would say more impactful intelligence community-led interference, mainly the GRU uh, hacking and leaking. So, of course, that conversation then came later, but it got mixed up in a weird way with the social media influence campaign, which was really disconnected as far as we can tell based on the actual data and evidence. IRA never had advanced knowledge of any leak that was forthcoming. And, of course, and 
I'm not sure we have time to go into detail here, but the second mistake that is closely related is that we, I think, collectively are fooling ourselves because we think that the absolute numbers that we see, clicks and impressions and retweets and likes and numbers of people following a certain Facebook group or liking an ad, that these numbers actually reflect impact. But the reality is much more difficult to, to assess. And you bring up, well, I suppose I brought up the troll farm, but of course there's the, the, the more notorious steel dossier, which it seems like the entirety of international investigative journalism, that field spent years trying to chase up. And you know, I remember early on, there was a, an interview in the New York Times between John Le Carre and Ben McIntyre discussing what's going on in Trump land with respect to Russian shenanigans and so on. And I believe it was McIntyre who said, you know, all of the old MI6 spies that he had talked to said that this document was a sort of classic Russian produced product in the sense that some of it is true, some of it is false, some of it no one can ever substantiate. But the only person who really who has read it, who knows what's true in it is Donald Trump himself. So by the, the act of simply releasing this into the information ecosystem, I believe the phrase was you put a, sh a stone in the shoe of the president for the duration of his presidency. Now, that's not to say that it was a conspiracy in terms of its dissemination. I mean, obviously, it was leaked to the press by the people you know, who were hired by the Democratic Party to do it. But now subsequent reporting shows that some of the sources and subsources were not, shall we say, the most reliable of interlocutors. And there is this burning question of, was this a disinformation product or was it a disinformation and credible information product woven into one? I can tell you, perhaps not now, but for another day, kind of various news organizations, you know, asking me to spend weeks of my time trying essentially chase my tail with this thing. In retrospect, I mean, perhaps not to give too much credit to the Russian government or the Russian intelligence services, but if there was something a bit dodgy or conspiratorial about this, it succeeded incredibly well, because as I say, we were all distracted by it when in fact, the gravamen of what they were doing, as you point out, the hack and leak operation by Guru attempts to perhaps cultivate or second actors within the campaign. That's the stuff that got buried. The sensationalism led and the actual content was eclipsed by it. Well, your steel dossier question is obviously a complex one because the steel dossier itself is a complex and fraught document. Uh, it's in fact many a number of memos that really should be assessed each individually on their own merits. We don't have time to do that here, and I don't did, haven't done my homework to refresh my memory on this issue. But let me just pull out a bigger observation that I think pertains to the whole conversation of disinformation. Historically, one mistake that intelligence agencies who engage in active measures or political warfare, historically, one mistake that they tend to make, and the archival evidence is very clear on this, they tend to overestimate their own impact. And really, because of how bureaucracies work, they overstate how sophisticated they are. Now, post-2016, we have joined them in making that mistake, right. if you like, because we ascribe more sophistication, more shrewdness, more strategic planning to many operations and campaigns than, than there probably was. Uh, so I'm not convinced, really, based on the data that I've seen that we can say with any confidence that the steel dossier contains Russian disinformation. That is an assumption that people make really ultimately, and I'm going to be provocative because they want to find Russian disinformation, right? Because for some reason it makes them feel better. It's, it sort of scratches an emotional itch that they have. The different ones actually here that it's a different conversation, but I would be very cautious. Let's not ascribe too much power to them. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's also a way too of, you know, assigning blame to the Russians that was not assigned, let's say, by the Mueller report. You know, the Mueller report kind of came down as this enormous anticlimax, right? We all spent that 12 hour, 18 hour period reading it, looking for the kind of smoking gun, if you like. It wasn't there, even though it wasn't really a counterintelligence investigation. It was a criminal conspiracy obstruction of justice investigation. So to then pivot and say, well, how do we all get everything so wrong? It must have been the Russians planting fake stories, which itself is a kind of a form of conspiracy. So I, I'm, I agree with you on that. But let me ask you, when you say that the hack and leak operation was really the more significant one, and this is a, a conversation I've had with a, a number of political figures, particularly those aligned with the Democratic Party. I, at one point, I asked members of the Clinton campaign, you guys never certified that these were your e- emails, right? And the response I got was, no, we didn't, because to go through the tens of thousands of documents would mean we don't know whether there was disinformation planted. So, you know, in, in other words, they hack our correspondence, they leak it, 99.9% of it is authentic. Yeah. But then there's that 0.1% that, that might have been manufactured, which could be seized upon by journalists and analysts. I mean, there you go. That That is a disinformation campaign. It's a bit of a lazy response, actually. Is it? Okay, please. <laughs> take over. Well, let's be specific and focused. Let's look at the first Good Schiffer 2 leak that uh, was published on the uh, 15th or 16th of June 2016. The first Good Schiffer 2 leak, you know, Good Schiffer 2, the GRU front, yeah. claimed they claimed themselves that the data that they were leaking were from Hillary Clinton's server in the State Department. That's their own language. Now, at the time, it was confusing moment and difficult to make sure or ascertain where the data were actually from. Right. But now we can do this and we can ascertain and do that in the book with the evidence that you would want to see that the data were actually from John Podesta's inbox. Those five documents leaked that day. There were more than five, but five of them, the most important ones were from John Podesta's inbox in June already, not only in October on WikiLeaks, but they sourced from John Podesta's inbox the first leaks. And why is this so important? Because they modified the files. So there was disinformation in there. There was a small amount of forgery in there. It was only minor because they upgraded the classification or confidentiality from you know, confidential yeah. the, to secret, which was a, is an old trick in the box of active measures to arouse more interest because secret stuff is more interesting. Right. And they also lied about the providence of this file because it was not from Hillary Clinton's server in the State Department because at the time when the document was actually written, she was not Secretary of State. You know, they, the Clinton campaign or whoever, why did they not point this out on that day? We couldn't have known this on the outside. They knew it. So they could have undermined the credibility of this leak on the very first day, but nobody did so. I suppose the fear, or not to put words in their mouth, but the fear would be, the minute they comment on the content of the emails themselves, that becomes a story and then they have to go through everything else. So in other words, the exercise would become what is authentic and what has been fabricated or distorted. Yeah. And they may not have fully understood the providence of these files at that moment themselves because we, we didn't know what we know today. So maybe I'm, I shouldn't you know, give them too much credit for what they knew at the time. Right. One of the things that, that's fascinated and also kind of bedeviled my own attempt to understand what took place in the last election. And I, I do want to move into 2020 because I find a lot of this more intriguing, as I think do you. This is where active measures and, and intelligence operations becomes more of an art form than a science, right? I mean, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that the GRU or the SVR or anybody sitting in Moscow can, with a straight 
face claim that they were responsible for changing votes or swaying the electorate in such a decisive manner. Because the way I see it, you know, if you were somebody who is already inclined to be suspicious of Hillary Clinton, if not outright hostile to her, even though you didn't perhaps like Donald Trump. Being exposed to uh, you know some emails that have been written up in the New York Times or watching Facebook and seeing ads about Black Lives Matter or about Make America Great Again themed issues, at what point does the sort of circuitry in your brain make you decide, right, I'm going to vote for candidate X over candidate Y? Yeah. I don't see any credible social science that can give us a, a proper understanding for what took place. Yeah, absolutely. Correct. So active measures are such an interesting thing to study because they confront us with really hard philosophical problems. One of them is, for example, that we sometimes have to embrace contradictions. Both things that appear to contradict each other can be true here. And another one is the one you're referring to here that is an evidential problem. The data that we have underdetermine the conclusion that we draw, meaning that they can't explain the conclusion that you know Russian election interference actually moved the needle in the general election in 2016 or 2020 for that matter. Why is this so important? Because it leaves us hanging. If you come to the conclusion either saying that Russia didn't move the needle or saying that Russia actually installed Trump in the White House, both of those statements are not fully backed up by the evidence. Yeah. But if we move from black and white into a confidence level or likelihoods, if you like, based on the data that I've seen, and I you know, try to look pretty hard, I think it's significantly more likely, I have higher confidence saying that Russia didn't actually impact the outcome of the election, uh, this campaign, than the opposite. So let me just tease out why this is of such fundamental political importance. Yeah. Making a clear-cut statement either way is a call of judgment, meaning it's a political act to claim that Russia installed uh, Trump or that Russia didn't actually have any impact. If you pretend you're 100% sure you're making a political claim, not an evidence-based claim. Again, I tend to agree. Um, what makes this also, and, and this is the, the segue into kind of the contemporary scene now, what makes this a bit kind of galling, as you point out, is, you know, we bury the lead, as it were. We don't pay attention to the really significant stuff. We pay attention to the more overhyped and sensationalized stuff. And so with that, let's turn now to this DNI report, which dropped this week. You and I have poured over it. Um, I think we've both read it a number of times. I wrote a piece about it and, and what the kind of significant findings in it were. And you made a comment on Twitter that this really does show a maturation of the U.S. intelligence community's understanding of how these things work, the level of detail that's in there. And you know, th this is a rather artful document in that it doesn't name American names, but it gives away enough details that we know who the actors are. I mean, Rudy Giuliani is all over this thing in subtext. And, you know, they, they do, however, name some Russian intelligence officers' names. Uh, Andrei Dirkach, the Ukrainian parliamentarian who is essentially a paid agent of Moscow. Konstantin Kalimnik, Paul Manafort's business associate, also somebody who, for whatever reason, managed to infiltrate the International Republican Institute more than a decade ago. It is my understanding, based on his background and pedigree, that he's probably more in the GRU camp than the FSB camp, but this document's a little ambiguous about which service he works for. In your own words, I mean, what what is so kind of seismic about this text and how does it actually really move the needle for us in understanding what took place? Because the coverage of 2020 Russian election interference was a bit more muted 
not a bit actually, <laughs> enormously more muted than the coverage of 2016. And yet, perhaps you disagree, I see a much broader scope and scale of interference operations here because you, you essentially have two Russian spies pulling the, the wool over the eyes of the president of the United States personal attorney and a man who really more conciliary to the president and who acted as his opposition research guru slash hatchet man. And also, according to a claim made by a Democratic congressman on the Intelligence Committee in the House of Representatives, also managed to get disinformation packages handed to the then chairman of the House Intel Committee, Devin Nunes. Yeah. That's way better in terms of Russian tradecraft than, you know, luring Carter Page to a conference in Moscow or trying to tell George Papadopoulos that, oh, Hillary Clinton's emails are now in the hands of the Kremlin, et cetera, et cetera. What is your assessment of this document? And am I wrong to say it? it, it's more of a bombshell than I think it's being given credit for being? Yeah, so great questions. And there, indeed, there are many questions that leap from the pages of the 15 pages of this report. And it's a very impressive report. Let me just preface by saying the U.S. intelligence community is not assessing the effectiveness and the impact of any of this because that's not their purview and responsibility. And they say that clearly up front. So one of those contradictions that I mentioned earlier that we have to be able to embrace is, yes, on the one hand, there was, as you indicate, more sophisticated and probably a wider range of Russian methods and tactics on display. But also, yes, on the other hand, they were most likely less effective than what we saw in 2016. That both can be true and probably are correct. I think a lot of people expected to see some form of rerun of 2016, meaning some form of hack and leak and predominantly social media interference, uh, because that's what we extracted. Those dominated the conversation post-2016. That's not what we're seeing here. Less cyber, less hacking than expected. And the social media interference was a little, was also because the social media companies, I I suspect, have been uh, learning some important lessons, was also less meaningful. Instead, we see, as you indicate, more old school uh, attempts to seed views and narratives through influence agents and proxies. And here, of course, the problem that we have as, a, as researchers and investigative journalists or re- investigators writ large is that we the kind of tradecraft that is on display is more disciplined. It's more disciplined in the sense that it's harder to uncover on, based on public sources. So while in 2016 we had lots of public evidence or evidence that we could gather from private sector companies and digital forensics, here we don't have that. They essentially have removed themselves from the uh, prying eyes of investigators like you know, ourselves, almost completely, not completely, but more significantly than they did in 2016. They didn't make as many stupid mistakes as in 2016, really. Well, and also one of the things that pops out here is most of these efforts, the human-to-human interactions which had taken place, I believe took place outside of American soil. So Giuliani goes to Ukraine, he meets with Derkach. Perhaps he meets with Kalimnik, I don't know, but Kalimnik obviously is very well entrenched in Kiev and has been for many years. And that, you know, speaking to the kind of classic tradecraft, if you're going to, in this case, not recruit somebody, but if you're going to try to cultivate or manipulate somebody, it's a lot easier in terms of operational security to do it outside the prying eyes of the FBI. And yeah, I was kind of blown away by this because the human intelligence component in 2016 was scant. There was all kinds of innuendo, you know, this Maltese professor, Joseph Mifsud, was he a Russian agent? And if so, was he trying to perhaps cultivate or at least get information from George Papadopoulos, et cetera, et cetera, but nothing really concrete here. 
black and white, two Russian intelligence officers. Yeah. Gold, the personal journey of the president, and also managed to plant a documentary brimming with yeah. fake news or disinformation into a what is now an increasingly more mainstream television network, yeah. the One American News Network, right? Kind of extraordinary in, in a way. <laughs> yeah. But I think here in this context, it helps really to take a step back and look at the historical key feature of what makes these active measures or disinformation operations or influence campaigns, what characterizes them. And on the most, in the most abstract uh, conceptual you know, way, what they're designed to do is to exacerbate frictions, to drive wedges into existing cracks in the, in your, in the targeted body politic. Yeah. Now, why is this so important today? Because clearly the United States in 2020 was, you know, so fractured, polarized and internally fighting with itself, uh, full of internal conflicts that were ripe targets for external influence attempts. And I think some of that we saw in the, in the assessment. But at the same time, and this is crucial to understand, you don't need any foreign influence for these cracks to widen for wedges to be driven into. So let's make this concrete. Take the Hunter Biden leaks that ended up in the New York Post. I'm sure we both followed those very closely. Right. Let's assume there was some form of Russian component in the early seeding of those files on that computer or elsewhere because they're the multiple sources, apparently. And I don't know whether we can say that with confidence. I don't think we can say it with confidence. It's still an open question. How did that Mac, that uh, you know, MacBook end up in that Mac store in Wilmington, Delaware? But just as a thought experiment for a moment, this is, I'm not making that claim that it was a Russian operation. We don't know that for a fact. But as a thought experiment, let's assume there was a Russian hand in there. Even if that was the case, it doesn't appear that there are major forgeries in those files. They appear to be accurate, but like those pictures, for example, of Hunter Biden. But the main value add, the, the work that was put into this narrative, into this specific case, mainly came from American, from Americans from people inside the United States, Rudy Giuliani, the New York Post itself, other media figures on the right that amplified the story again and again. That was actually really created the value here. So even, you know, we shouldn't describe to Russia this remote control power because we, we are conflicted and you cannot subtract what a foreign operation, sort of how they subtly changed the needle of existing um, polarizations and conflicts. And this is an important point. We tend to conceive of Russian intelligence officers as sort of Boris and Natasha style, you know, mustache twirling, sinister agents who can control things that, you know, we simply can't do ourselves. But really, I mean, you use sort of the wedge metaphor. I see it as American society, particularly in the last half decade or more, sort of lemmings running off a cliff and the Russians are at the edge of the cliff waving us on, you know, perhaps screaming notes of encouragement, jump, jump, jump. They don't have to do very much. Amplification, a little bit of embellishment here and there, but also platforming voices that are trying to exacerbate these societal tensions. That seems to be more stock and trade. Well, here's a question for you, a question that I've been struggling with over the past days since the document came out, but also really over the past four years. Yeah. And the question is, one of since about 2017, since the Mueller investigation really occupied so much space in our, in our conversation, amplified by then President Trump, of course, but the most important impact vector of disinformation is not the actual operation. It's the conversation about disinformation which is so polarized. So Facebook uh, takedowns are the perfect example. When Facebook takes down a, some obscure, tiny influence network, nobody has ever heard of really, because it's only 
has such small engagement figures, then there's a New York Times story and, you know, an evening news coverage of it. Then everybody hears about it. Right. So it's the meta disinformation, the conversation about disinformation that is so polarizing. And the question that I have, and I, I may have a f suggestion for an answer, but I'm interested in what you say. The question that I have is, can you imagine this is a plan that uh, specific Russian entities are planning for these post-exposure effects? Yeah, I mean, look, I was having a conversation with a colleague yesterday about, um, I'm sure you saw this, this, this came out a few months ago, that um, Yevgeny Prigozhin's IRA stood up two different fake news outlets, uh, one for the far left, Peace Data, one for the far right, the name of which I can't recall, but it was the far right one was very racist and xenophobic, the far left one. On Pala, yeah. Yeah very anti-imperialist. And nobody had ever heard of either of these portals until, of course, the New York Times and the Associated Press, as you say, we, we amplified them. But what was extraordinary for me was instead of people sitting in a building in St. Petersburg pretending to be, you know, John Q. American, they had hired Western freelancers to create some of the content that they were putting out. And they had told these Western freelancers, we're Americans. And they even created artificial intelligence manufactured avatars to give to the so-called editors when in fact they were IRA operatives the whole time. I read this as, okay, if these are the two examples that we have alighted upon, and they were marginal in their impact. I think we can say with confidence, nobody had heard of these things. They didn't move the news cycle in any direction. That can't be the only two examples, right? So what are the ones that are occurring now, meaning these influence operations laundered through Western alt media organizations that we haven't exposed that might be having a much bigger impact? And as you point out, we seize upon the two sort of almost footnote style cases. And then there's this hue and cry and everyone says, well, okay, fine, Prigozhin is doing this, but look, these are bloggers. These are kind of semi-anonymous freelancers. Who cares? If this is the Russian effort, look how crude and ineffective it is. And in our mind, we have this lowered expectation, right, of what the Russians can get up to um, because everything has been so oversold and so hyped. And that's what worries me because they are ahead of us in terms of figuring out ways to gain the system. And indeed, I mean, the conversation, I really, the, a very rancorous debate that we're now having, whether it's about Substack's editorial policies or the cancellation of certain Twitter accounts or the, even the labeling of news or fake news organizations that are shown to have been funded by the Russian government as state affiliated. Yeah. We're talking about American censorship, which, you know, if you're sitting in Moscow, you kind of rub your hands, right? Of course, yeah. You know, th this is great. This this only furthers that that social and cultural polarization, which ultimately serves Russian government interest. Yeah, totally. I mean, a different way of putting what you just said with a different metaphor is active measures are designed to rub salt into existing wounds. Exactly. So what is the wound here? The wound here is not Hunter Biden smoking, you know, something. The wound is our conversation about disinformation, our conversation about censorship, our conversation about the far, you know, Russia hoax or all-powerful Russia who installed Trump. That is the wound itself. And I agree. I think it's very thinkable. In fact, we have some historic precedent for intelligence operations that were deliberately designed and planned and constructed in order to unfold their intended effect when they were discovered by the adversary yeah. and made public. And you know the other phenomenon I'm noticing, and perhaps you are too, is people keep asking themselves, why are you know sort of right-wing media, particularly Fox News, why are they so obsessed by cultural issues when the political issues of what you know the Biden stimulus package or you know Biden's policy at the border, all of these things you would expect them to want to litigate. I mean, why this obsession over Dr. Seuss books and Pepe Le Pew and all that? And then if you switch over to Russian media and how they're describing what's taking place in the United States. 
you begin to understand, actually, these cultural issues, when they trump politics and economic issues, are a great way of showing that American society is not just fractured, it's a, it's a million pieces on the ground, right? We are cannibalizing ourselves. We are hoisting ourselves on our own petard in terms of free speech, First Amendment issues, Silicon Valley, which we had yesterday accused of being an unwitting accomplice to Russian active measures, has now become a witting accomplice to the CIA and the FBI's attempt to curtail or uh, silence alternative points of view. And yeah, as you say, it, it is rubbing salt in an open wound. And it works quite well, actually. I mean, yeah, if we wrap ourselves ourselves around the axle on disinformation, then we become a little more like Russia itself. Yeah. Or put differently, if we either overstate, or which would happen on the center-left, or understate, which would happen on the right, the effect of Russian disinformation, then either way, if we're not getting it right, if we either go too far overstating or too far too low understating, then we become a form of useful idiots. Yeah. Because the operation was planned that way. I don't think that's an overstatement. And I'm going to be even more provocative just to sort of test the idea, really. If that is true, then the intelligence community itself has to be aware of this dynamic. They have to be aware that it may actually be in the, in the interest of their adversary that they declassify a document like the one that we've seen two days ago. Because now we have, again, have this highly polarizing counterproductive conversation about, about Russia. Well, you know, one of the, the kind of historical episodes I have to engage with my book, because it's, it's not just about GRU activities in the last 10 years, it goes back to the 20s and starts actually with the Chambers-Hiss case, which you talk about a polarizing example in the political environment, but also the cultural environment. I mean, this was, this was a, you know, there's a great book written called um, Generation on Trial, because, you know, the whole 1930s radical milieu, this upended their entire world and talk about disinformation and, and smear campaigns and slander and libel and all the rest of it. You know, McCarthyism, which became a kind of a great tool for the Kremlin to say any attempt to try and shed light on their intelligence operations was simply a witch hunt. It was it was another kind of reactionary form of persecution of dissidents and you know left-wing activists in the United States. Right now, I'm seeing the same kind of phenomenon take place. Any attempt to try and get to the bottom of whether it's the Hunter Biden laptop story or the Giuliani Oanon documentary into the Biden's shenanigans in Ukraine, it's, oh, here we go again, another Russia gate hoax, another polar yeah. damp squib. And so, you know, when you oversell something and under deliver, whether it's the intelligence community doing it, or it's the media establishment doing it, or it's the analytic community doing it, yeah. you have fashioned a rod for your own back because the, <laughs> when something major does happen, yeah. nobody is going to take you seriously. I mean, you're the boy who cried wolf. Absolutely. This is such an important thing you just said there. I, I think I'm personally also so frustrated and I'm sure you, you're often in a similar situation. You cannot make a nuanced observation on anything disinformation, Russian disinformation related without being attacked by both sides of the political spectrum at the same time. Correct. It's really annoying to, that we have reached this point where, as you say, if something serious happens, we need the credibility. So, you know, overstating the evidence and just claiming something is a big Russian conspiracy, which, which you sometimes see even in the intelligence community and among former intelligence officers, that is gambling away the credibility that you may really need when the rubber hits the road properly the next time. Yeah. 
I, I well recall, um, I was on CNN, it must have been 2017, and I, I kept hearing this word collusion bandied about. And I said, I think it was on Don Lemon's show, I said, you know, this isn't, a, what is this term? It's not, it's not a legal term of art, much less in terms of intelligence, yeah. collusion, it doesn't mean anything. You know, if you're writing a novel, you could say so-and-so colluded, but when you're trying to examine things from a counterintelligence point of view, this is not to give myself credit for um, prescience, quite the opposite. At the time, I didn't realize just how toxic and pregnant this this term was going to become because everybody again was expecting Robert Mueller himself to be frog marching the president of the United States out of the Oval Office in handcuffs. Yeah. That was going to be the capstone on collusion in neon letters. And, you know, my God, you know, how much damage this has done to the body politic in terms of not only just understanding rampant corruption and criminality within our own ranks, but trying to get our heads around what our adversaries are doing to us on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, even worse, I mean, to, just to take this conversation a step further, by making that mistake, by overestimating the adversary and having this very public conversation that, that makes Russian influence appear so much more powerful uh, in a way that is not evidence-based. Right. By doing that, I think we are incentivizing other adversaries to invest in the same type of capabilities. And indeed, it appears to me that the report, the intelligence assessment that we've seen two days ago, shows that. Because suddenly we have, you know, Iran, Cuba, to, to a degree, Hezbollah, yeah, uh, Cuba engaging in in the in, in some obviously on a lower level in in these types of operations. That is probably a result of creating a marketplace for disinformation by talking about it too much. And fascinatingly enough, you, you mentioned this in the report. They disclaim any Chinese election interference, saying actually Beijing wanted to have more stable relationship with the United States. You click on the news now, though, and Jake Sullivan is being read the riot acts in this delegation saying the United States has committed grave human rights abuses and the Chinese Communist Party is invoking Black Lives Matter and all the rest of it. And again, it's, you know, this is the problem when you start to kind of get ahead of your skis a little bit. You invite everybody in to say, OK, now we want you to push these narratives. Now we want you to say we are the, the grand conspirator in the room responsible for all your misfortunes. Because when, you know, the evidence comes down and it, it you know, it's shown that you're, you've essentially just been bullshitting, no one's ever going to believe you again. No one's going to take you seriously. I have to say, I mean, I, I'm a full-time journalist. The confidence and faith that the American people have in media right now, I haven't really examine the historical scope of this thing, but it seems to be, if not at an all-time low, then certainly an historical low. And this is very worrisome to me. And yes, I mean, any attempt to try and, and have an opinion or to advance an argument that might be even slightly provocative will be met with kind of these baying mobs from, as you put it, from both sides of the ideological spectrum. You can't win. You know, you cannot win. It happened to me more than once that uh, my credibility was questioned because I have a blue check mark on Twitter and people assumed I'm a journalist. A blue check mark. Yeah. But I, I always love it when when blue check marks invoke the blue check mark as some kind of scarlet letter, you know, as though <laughs> it's like physician heal thyself. You must be discredible or non-credible yourself. I will say that it really should be called the white check mark, um, though. Exactly. Because it's the opposite color, right? It's, the blue is the outlying. Who uses the light mode? Uh, let us not be coy. You wrote a very good piece saying we should treat the Hunter Biden laptop story as disinformation. But by that, you didn't mean you were not asserting for sure it was disinformation. You just said this had all the hallmarks of something a bit inauthentic or something manufactured. And Glenn Greenwald 
pounced. And apparently you were just another exponent of this malign liberal elitist conspiracy. It's just, it's remarkable. Like people actually don't read, they don't read the things that they're, they're attacking anymore. It's how does the headline fit into narrative wars, which itself is, is another sign of this kind of social pathology we've been discussing. Yeah, I don't think we should discuss Glenn Greenwald here. Let's just keep it at, keep it at. <laughs> Sorry. I actually muted his name on Twitter the other the other day because I just I can't stand to hear anything about or from him anymore. But um, yeah, but yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, this is this is part of the problem. But I mean, just for the record, he is actually a fairly clever mind on, on occasion. So I don't think uh, that this was just a bad faith attack because he surely read the rest of the article. And my point was only that we should give this piece, this story, the Hunter Biden leaks, the full scrutiny that is available to us and not rush to conclusions. That's all what I all that I wanted to say. Right. But that in itself, you're now declaring war against the New York Post and the Murdoch media empire. So, you know, you, the, the retaliation came fast and furiously. Thomas, is there anything else from the ODNI report in particular that stood out to you? I mean, there's so many little bits and bobs and, and days in, I'm still finding things that I didn't notice before. Yeah. I agree. You know, the, that Derkach apparently was controlled or answerable to Putin himself. I mean, that that's, that is no small revelation in a document of this kind. I mean, we have a few minutes left. Yeah, they start off with a high, high confidence assessment claiming that Putin himself, uh, you know, the first sort of key judgment, that, that's a remarkable uh, finding there, which is unsurprising because the conversation uh, about this is, is such a high profile conversation. One thing that jumped out at me was that some form of Russian operation attempt uh, was behind the notion that Ukraine interfered, the false idea that Ukraine interfered in 2016. That strikes me as fascinating because it really shows that larger point that I just tried to tease out, that they have understood that the conversation about disinformation, and this was the narrative about what happened in 2016, that the active measure has essentially reached a meta level because it's trying to shape what is said about influence in the first yeah. time about disinformation. Another question for you, if I, if I may, because I have this opportunity here. You're writing a book about GRU. One of the questions that I find difficult to uh, tackle is how come so many, almost all disinformation operations that we can talk about with archival evidence from the Cold War and, and before in, in the Soviet Union are KGB operations. But then in the internet age, now that we are looking at the Russian Federation, the majority of influence operations seem to be GRU. How did they make the leap from uh, you know, SVR to GRU? Well, the two points that I would make just off the top of my head is one, you know, given the kind of permutations and structures of Russian or Soviet intelligence organs, I mean, as you know, the heads of the GRU were usually selected from the KGB because the KGB was very territorial and also suspicious of military intelligence. So the GRU was sort of the redheaded stepchild of services, even though paradoxically in the 20s and 30s, as I hope to show in my book, they ran some of the most impressive human intelligence operations, you know, in the world. I mean, Jan Berzin was the the director of the fourth directorate and and or department, and I mean, he was a, a brilliant uh, spy master in terms of disinformation and propaganda. The GRU got its own in. I would say, though, the reason that we only know about KGB active measures is because at least some of the archives have either been released or, more to the point, smuggled out. I mean, the Mctorkin archive is an amazing tranche of documents and disclosures. In fact, just the other day on Twitter, 
I was messaging with a former FBI agent who told me that on the basis of that archive, he was going around to people in their 60s and 70s, sort of red diaper baby communists who had in some ways worked with Soviet intelligence structures, albeit at a sub-spy level. So they, they didn't commit any crimes. And as you know, I mean, there's a whole kind of gray area that you can occupy here. But yeah, we just know more about the KGB because whether through defectors, what happened after the fall of the Soviet Union and the partial disclosure of their archive and their, their documents, it's just more readily available. The GRU, funnily enough, given how sloppy and reckless they have been in the last half decade is still a much more clandestine organization. I mean, that's why for me, getting those documents into the psychological warfare, you know, sort of methodology was a huge exclusive because you simply cannot obtain these things. Yeah. It's incredibly, incredibly hard to do so. So are you also implying there that GRU counterintelligence, meaning keeping American uh, spies out uh, or Western spies out, was superior in the Cold War and possibly still is? No, I don't, I don't think counterintelligence was superior in the Cold War. I think their efforts at the informational level have not been fully divulged, and they may never be, frankly. I mean, you know, as I say, the, the continuity of this organization, too, is important because when the KGB was disbanded in, in the early 90s and, you know, a lot of these guys were cast to the wind and became private security officers working for oligarchs or businesses or whatever. And then it was reconstituted into FSB and SVR. There was a lot of porousness to what was taking place. But the GRU has been in operation since 1918, uninterrupted. And in fact, if you go back to the early 1990s in the UK, you know, MI5, there are people on record who were saying, we're not worried about FSB or SVR operations. We're more worried about the GRU because they never stopped. From the communist to the post-communist era, they've just continued in their their efforts. I don't know. I, I'm sorry if that's not a, a very coherent or um, good answer to your question. I mean, it is fascinating that, yeah, you don't see these sort of case studies of here is how a product was made or manufactured by the G. I mean, the stuff I'm doing is mostly human intelligence orientated. Yeah. You have a lot yeah. of defectors. You have obviously wet work, assassination, sabotage attempts, chemical weapons use or nerve agent use, I should say. Uh, there was also a big GRU component in the uh, Manhattan Project which I'm sort of digging at because we also assume that was all KGB, but it wasn't. Interesting. Yeah, I know. The psychological warfare bit in my book is going to be derived exactly from these primary sources, which I obtained, and from which you can then sort of, I suppose, reverse engineer certain case studies. I mean, so for instance, these diaspora groups that have now been constructed and that are putting out you know, all this stuff, I have it on very good authority. These are GRU cutouts. But again, this is all taking place within the last decade. We're not going back into Cold War for that stuff. What do you think about the hypothesis that, and, and this is only, you know, this is literally just, I'm just theorizing here. What do you think about the hypothesis that, because we're looking at a double shift, we're looking at a shift of active measures moving from the first chief directorate yeah. of KGB to GRU, uh, but also from human intelligence units to technical intelligence units. That appears to be the case. So it could be simply that the predisposition to engage in active measures is really in the DNA and in, military, in intelligence academy is deeply embedded in, in the culture of all of these organizations. But then as the internet shifted the battle space, so to speak, into a more technical space, the GRU or GRU just had a higher risk appetite and a higher pace of operations. So they were first in, in re uh, enrolling it out again in, a, in that new environment. Absolutely. 
And, you know, I mean, one of the big disclosures from this, um, these, they're not manuals, they're lectures prepared for, funnily enough, not for the military diplomatic academy, but for the military university students studying psychological operations. But one of the main disclosures from this tranche of documents is that I think it was in 1994, when the Soviet military intelligence unit was bundled into the GRU which is to say bundled into a full-time espionage apparatus. The distinction between war and peace was elided, right? So in other words, the Soviet military intelligence, they would do their propaganda, they would do their disinformation packages, whatever you want to call it, psychological warfare, when they were in a state of, of active war with an adversary. The GRU was in a state of war with everybody from the very beginning, because that's what by nature, by definition, an intelligence service has to do. So in terms of now kind of militarizing information, it became only within the last, what, 30 or so years, so post-Soviet period, that the GRU has decided we are going to constantly engage with deceiving the enemy or, you know, pumping false information into the zeitgeist and essentially doing the things that the KGB had been doing, you know, for far longer. I don't know. That is a hypothesis. As I say, and, and this is the difficulty, without getting access to the horse's mouth, as it were, it's almost impossible to know what they really got up to. I mean, I, I would not be surprised if in 50 years, people such as ourselves are having a conversation of, we had no idea the GRU was yeah. this capable and this expansive in its psychological warfare approach is pre-Soviet. I mean, one maybe just one detail to tease out from the report that fits in nicely here is that data point that the Russian intelligence community appears to have started targeting Biden in 2014. Yes. And I think wrongly, in my estimation, but again, this is also a question to you, my view there would be that it is very unlikely that they you know, thought about a potential presidential run at that point in time. It's far more likely that they simply targeted uh, several American, in fact, through Islamic uh, caliphate, uh, cyber caliphate, this other front group. They targeted in many different ways American targets back in 2014, simply because the invasion of Crimea and the um, Maidan situation in Kyiv led to an escalation in foreign targeting. So to that point, I would say, because then Vice President Biden had essentially taken on the Ukraine file and was very involved in, as you know, these anti-corruption measures and trying to get Kiev's house in order. He's a natural target for them. I don't know if you read the Estonian Foreign Intelligence Annual Assessment that just came out a few weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, I love how these guys break news in a way that I wish I could. Buried in that report is the disclosure that the GRU psychological warfare team, so the guys I've been writing about, what are they, uh, Unit 54777? They're like George Lucas student films, these designations. They're all very alphanumeric craziness. They had, and I'm not making this up, and I, I, I kind of was blown away by it. They had a uh, engineered a kind of security conference in Athens using pseudo think tank cutout organizations, but their own officers from the unit were up on stage having a conversation, posing as academics or specialists or analysts with the guy who eventually became the Greek defense minister, already kind of seen as a useful idiot and very much pro-Moscow. But even still, I mean, the stagecraft of this is kind of extraordinary. And this, what year did this take place? It took place, I believe, in 2014. I have to go back and check, but I think also it was right before Crimea. So you begin to see now, you know, clearly that the, the GRU was planning for something and the tip of the sphere was going to be a kind of psychological, informational warfare in advance of little green men, yeah. you know, taking over installations in, in the peninsula. Fascinating. Yeah. I can't wait for your book. 
I can't wait to, <laughs> to finish it. This, the pandemic has really just kind of, in a way though, I'm glad that it's been a deferred thing because the more time that has elapsed, the more stuff I'm, I've been getting and I've been able to dig into. I mean, the, the Prigozhin aspect of all of this, and you know, I kind of, I don't go back and forth. I'm just, I, I wonder about the connectivity. I mean, you've read the Bellingcat stuff about his telephony metadata and how often he would call the then director of the GRU and the, the chief of staff and the presidential administration. But you know, the Wagner training camp, catty cornered or next to GRU Spetsnaz training camp in Krasnodar. That is not a coincidence. Everyone who, who keeps telling me, oh, well, well, Wagner is just like, like a Russian Blackwater. I'm like, I don't think Blackwater trains on real estate in like Fort Meade, you know, like that's just not, doesn't work that way. And especially there's no equivalence between the American way of doing things and the Russian way of doing things. This is not a coincidence to me. So to what extent, because now what you're seeing Prigozhin and his network do far beyond mercenary activities, far beyond troll farms, they are setting up full-scale political consultancies that are mucking about in elections all over sub-Saharan Africa and literally hiring or seconding every single candidate in certain elections so that whoever wins, they become a Russian asset. It's it's kind of extraordinary. I refuse to believe that this is one oligarch's sort of commercially inspired brainchild. There is no way that this is not connected to one, if not more, services. Yeah, it appears to be a way in their mind to preserve uh, former greatness and influence in in a in a way that is you know, covert. And it's plausibly deniable, right? Oh, he's just a businessman, like all businessmen doing doing business in foreign countries and trying to make a living, right? Thomas, it's been a delight and a privilege, and we have to have you back on the next time there's a big, uh, I don't know, U.S. intelligence data dump (laughs) or whatever you like, really. Yeah. Anytime. All right. Anytime. This was great fun. I really enjoyed this and learned a lot from you. So thank you for doing this. Likewise. And I'm I'm humbled that you would say such a thing. I'm Michael Weiss. You've been listening to uh, Foreign Office, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks very much. Bye.